a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. So welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Networks, fondly known as OGGN, and this is the Digital Doers Podcast. And just like the guy said in the intro, my name is Joanne Meyer and I'm your host. And I'm here today to talk with someone about a topic. Well, we're going to probably talk about a lot of different topics because this gentleman is pretty accomplished and he's been around in the industry for 35 plus years. So I think we're going to have an opportunity to hear a lot of really interesting things. Well, one of the things that we do here on the Digital Doers podcast is we do talk about technology and data. But one of the things I like to do is to also talk about how technology impacts and affects our workplace, our cultures, how employees actually benefit or or perhaps have some difficulties from technology. But most of the time, it's kind of focused on the workplace. And today, I think it's fitting since it's very early summer when we are recording this. It might not be summer when you're listening to it. But we're going to talk about something that a lot of people like to do in the summer, and it has a little bit to do not just with the workplace, but with our lives in general. And like I said, that won't be all we talk about, but it's going to be a little more of something that impacts all of our lives, perhaps work and home life, fun, etc. But before I get into that, I do want to take a minute here and say thank you to our sponsor. Our sponsor is HPE, and if you get a chance, go take a look at hpe.com, and in particular, take a look at one of their new technology platforms they have called GreenLake, and GreenLake is all about bringing the cloud to you, whether that is wherever your data and your apps reside, that cloud experience can come to you, and evidently that's important important because statistics show that about 70% of companies' apps and data still reside on-premise. So whether you're looking to have that experience or edges, your co-locations where your data resides or wherever, GreenLake, HPE GreenLake, is all about helping you have that cloud experience wherever you would like to. And so with that, I'd like to introduce my guest today, and his name is Brian Glover. And Brian is the president and the CEO for Honeywell UOP, and that stands for Universal Oil Products. And Brian has been with Honeywell for, like I said, over 35 years and done all kinds of things, including... I assume maybe these patents have to do with Honeywell, although your patents, over 60 patents, I guess, and I guess it could be for things outside of Honeywell. But with that, Brian, welcome. Well, thank you, Joanne. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and really looking forward to talking about, you know, some of the exciting things that we're working on, as well as, you know, some of the exciting and critical trends going on in the industry today. Great. 
And so kind of going back to what I said early on, you recently had a trip out to California, maybe Southern California, and that was for a a big accomplishment and announcement. Yeah, I had the great opportunity to be in Paramount, California a few weeks back, actually on Earth Day with World Energy, who was celebrating what they called at the time their carbon cutting ceremony for their new sustainable aviation fuel project. Now, they've operated a small refinery in Paramount producing sustainable aviation fuel since 2016, but they're in the process now of expanding that significantly. So they're going to have significant increase in the amount of aviation fuel they produce, really installing a new process unit, UOP eco-fining unit, in order to do that. That sounds very interesting. And this is this sustainable aviation fuel, it's not highly prevalent. There's not a lot of production around the world yet, or that's a question, I guess, Brian. Yeah, that's right. It's really in the earlier industrial stages of production. There's been a trend towards producing renewable fuels, first for diesel and now increasingly for aviation fuel, based on animal and plant oils. So animal and plant oils can be converted into fuels, diesel or aviation fuel, that in terms of their molecular structure is essentially the same as the primary constituents in fossil-derived diesel and jet fuels. And the eco-finding process that I mentioned earlier is Honeywell UOP's technology that can make that conversion. So there's a number of plants that are operating today in the world, many of them generating diesel fuel primarily, but the existing plant and then the new plant in Paramount are focused on making slightly different material, which is kerosene for jet engines. Okay. And I understand that this particular unit will be, if I'm understanding correct, the largest in North America when it gets up and meets its design capacity. Yeah. When it's up and running, it will be the largest focused on producing sustainable aviation fuel. So, and in fact, the plant in Paramount has up until now been the only plant in North America that's been focused on producing sustainable aviation fuel as its primary product. And so it's really interesting and exciting what's been done at the Paramount plant. And it's a small oil refinery. It was originally built decades ago to process fossil crude and deliver gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, a range of products. But in recent years had been struggling financially and was ultimately, in the past decade, converted to be a renewable fuel plant, so to make sustainable aviation fuel. So the company was able to transform existing process units and reuse a lot of existing equipment with some modifications, You know, mostly shut down the fossil operations at the site and convert the site to produce sustainable aviation fuel along with a little bit of diesel that comes along with it as a co-product. That's been very successful. They've been providing their product into the Los Angeles airport system. And now with increasing demand for sustainable aviation fuel, they're looking at a significant scale up, which will require them to actually now install some new and larger equipment to operate in concert with the existing unit that they have today. Now, generally in terms of complexity, producing renewable diesel fuel is fairly straightforward. So the types of 
oils that are produced naturally, both vegetable and animal fats and oils, generally are of the right carbon range to be able to be catalytically decomposed into something that looks a lot like diesel fuel. In fact, it's a very, very high quality diesel fuel, higher quality than generally fossil derived diesel because it's very, very paraffinic. It doesn't have some of the impurities in it that harm the performance of diesel fuel. But it's a little too heavy and it's a little too linear to operate in a jet engine. So in order to transform that material into jet fuel, we have to do some light cracking. We use catalysts to crack the molecules down into a little bit lighter molecules. And then we have to do some isomerization. So in jet engines, it's important that there's some branching of the molecules that helps with a number of properties, including to keep the fuel at a low viscosity liquid at the very cold temperatures that we find when a jet's cruising at 30 to 40,000 feet. So it's a little bit complex to convert those straight chain molecules that you first get in the conversion to diesel into jet. And so the Paramount plant is focused on, especially the new plant, doing that in a very selective way so they can get a very high yield of jet without producing a lot of byproducts. And that's one of the things that's very exciting about what they're doing today is the new plant represents a significantly advanced technology over the first plant that they built. So their yield of jet will be even higher. And the new plant being not only larger, it'll have higher selectivity to the jet product. It will help them supply a much greater proportion of jet fuel into the Los Angeles airport system. And if I understand, that's pretty important. I was taking a look at the international, the IEA, the International Energy Association, their report from 2020. And, you know, they actually say that aviation is one of the most difficult sectors to decarbonize. And there's a couple of different reasons, one of which perhaps is a characteristic of what you were describing about the molecules. But part of it is because you do need a very energy dense fuel. And the other one, though, that they talked about is how great the demand is and the fact that the demand for aviation travel is forecast to grow about between four and five percent a year through 2040. And that's huge. And so having this ability to provide this fuel to take all of us on our summer vacations and all the things and travel for business, I think is going to be a big deal. And so is it the your eco-fining process that allows this higher yield? Is that the process there that allows to get that higher yield of fuel versus the byproducts? Yeah, that's right. And the eco-fining process is something that we've been working on for more than a decade and originally introduced to the industry quite a few years ago. There's a number of plants running in the world today practicing the eco-fining technology. One of them is our actual our technology partners in Italy, ENI, who operate two plants today, focused primarily on production of renewable diesel. Then in the United States, Diamond Green Diesel, which is a partnership between Valero and Darling, is operating a couple of plants today. Again, those are focused mainly on production of diesel. There's the plant in Paramount and then a number of additional plants that are either in the design, construction, or approaching commissioning stage as well in the U.S. and throughout the world. So today, there's a total of 29 eco-finding projects 
that are in various stages of construction, of design, of engineering, of operation, and those will continue to come on stream over the next couple of years. Many of them focused on diesel, but some of them focused on either co-production of diesel and jet or like the Paramount plant, mostly focused on diesel production. Because you're right, the trend towards renewable diesel is, or I mean, renewable jet is increasing fairly quickly. And as you pointed out, forecasts are for substantial growth in jet fuel requirements as we go forward, whereas globally demand for gasoline and demand for diesel has been slowing for a number of years. And depending on what sources you look at, both gasoline demand globally and diesel demand globally are expected to peak within probably the next decade. So we see jet continuing to grow somewhat unabated as economies grow around the world, as GDP grows, and as people's need and desire for transportation increases. And as you mentioned, it's one of the most difficult to abate uses for fossil fuels in particular. Whereas we've seen in the case of gasoline, a lot of growth in electric vehicles throughout the world and the energy density and the travel range of electrical vehicles meeting the needs of a lot of consumers. We see the same same kind of trends emerging for heavy-duty transportation, either electric or in some cases powered by hydrogen or other types of fuels potentially going into long-range heavy-duty transportation. The complexity with the aviation sector is the fact that of all the transportation sectors, energy density is the most critical there, given the cost and complexity of carrying all of the fuel with you and maintaining the range that's required for the global transport system that we've got today. So having a drop-in type replacement fuel for the aviation sector that really has all of the performance characteristics of fossil jet is very, very important and can support the growth of aviation even without the need for the rest of the transportation sector's energy demands or fossil fuel demands to be increasing. And really, the transformation to sustainable aviation fuel has only started. Less than 1% of the world's aviation fuel is produced this way today. We see throughout Europe, North America, and other parts of the world, governments increasingly supporting sustainable aviation fuel, either through regulation, various types of incentive schemes, But clearly, it's an area where going to a sustainable, renewable fuel can really help the industry meet its needs for decarbonization, but also continue to grow into the future. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I would think, you know, this is one of the modes of transportation that we wouldn't want to find out mid-trip that we had some energy issues. (laughs) So tell me a little bit, you know, as you talk about the fact that many other you know, sectors of transportation, different parts of the industry, and the electrification is meeting many and forecasts to continue to meet many of the energy needs for other modes of transportation. But one of the challenges I think that people are beginning to talk about is is like the supply issue, the feedstock, right? The battery metals and minerals that supply chain has some issues, you know, whether or not it's the abundance of the mines that are currently available or whether it's the ownership of those. And so I wonder, as we think about how important it is to ramp up 
this sustainable aviation fuel. Are there feedstock supply chain issues or are they different than what we might see with the electrification? Well, they're different than the supply limitations or the supply challenges with electrification, but they're certainly here nonetheless. And so the key feedstock or the key supply chain challenges really with sustainable aviation fuel really are the feedstock challenges. And so today we're using animal and vegetable fats and oils. There's clearly a limited supply of those based on you know the agricultural industries that support both of those. Certainly in the case of animal fats, limited supply. Vegetable oils, there's a good supply today and you know there's still vegetable oils and animal oils available to be converted into sustainable aviation fuel. But as we look forward to the future, those supplies are going to become fully utilized. And we want to make sure as we go forward that we're also not intruding on the food supply as well. So there's a natural balance and a limit to how much oil and fat can go into renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel without starting to have an impact on land usage and the food chain. So we're working, as are others, on bringing other sources of feedstock into the mix for producing sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel. One of the things that we've done most recently is we co-invested, actually along with United Airlines, in a company called Alder that's developing a way to bring woody biomass into the mix as a potential feedstock for the eco-finding process. And once we start to expand the aperture for feedstocks into things like woody biomass, which is in many cases either an agricultural waste or a forest products waste and available in significantly higher quantities, then that's going to open up the opportunity to produce significantly more SAF as we go forward. Alternately, there are other technologies that are in development today to take everything from municipal solid waste and process that all the way back through gasification and synthesis gas and ultimately produce a hydrocarbon product that could be used as sustainable aviation fuel, even taking captured CO2 and hydrogen produced through electrolysis and closing the circle back that way, taking things like ethanol and being able to convert that into olefins and again, ultimately oligomerized to sustainable aviation fuel. So there's a lot of routes that are available. Some of them require a little bit of technology advancement. I think most of them face some significant capital challenges, right? These are complex processes with a lot of steps, but I think there's a lot of routes out there and really to meet the challenge long-term, we're going to be needing to look at a lot of process technologies and a lot of different feedstocks. And certainly for us within Honeywell UOP, we're looking at a lot of these routes because we know it's really going to take this collection of routes in order to really satisfy the growth potential that we see here. Excellent. Excellent. And so if I understand correctly, what happened at the carbon cutting event, and I love that, what it what you're what was being celebrated, I think, is the actual permitting of the facility or the, Yeah, that's that correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what World Energy was celebrating was the fact that yeah, their permits had been approved and now they're ready to move forward with the construction of the plant. And so the time frame, what kind of time frame? Is it a couple of years? Is it longer than that? 
Brian, do you have any idea? Yeah, I don't have with me the exact specifics of World Energy's plans, but at the point that they're at now with their permits and with the amount of engineering that's been done, I think we're looking at the couple of years sort of time frame. Certainly, they're moving aggressively. I mean, certainly they're excellent. Tending to have this going as quick as they can. Great, great. And so currently, if the SAF or the sustainable aviation fuel is mixed 50-50, is that correct? That And some of that is already being burned in jets? Yes. So the SAF that the Paramount plant is making today, most of it goes to LAX. And there it's provided, a number of airlines are purchasing at LAX. And many of the flights flying out of LAX have at least a small amount of sustainable aviation fuel in them right. today. But you're right. It is today a 50-50 blend of the oil-based component and then of a fossil jet. And one of the complications here is that, like the diesel, the Equifining-derived product is very high purity with respect to paraffins. And so the primary component of jet fuel are the paraffin components, but fossil-derived jet fuel also contains some other chemical constituents, includes some aromatic compounds, includes small amounts of sulfur and other molecules that just don't exist within the equifining product because it's a very sort of pure product. And jet engine technology has really developed around the fossil product. And so there's a lot of specifications about the fossil product you know, getting it to be quite pure, but not completely pure when it comes to things like aromatics and sulfur and other compounds. And so jet engines are really built around the idea that those materials are going to be present and they have some properties, whether it's lubricity or other properties within the engine that are still important. And so today it's a mix 50-50. Now, those other constituents of the fuel from fossil sources Some of those can be generated synthetically as well. United recently had a flight in the U.S. where they, with the jet, they ran one of the engines completely on 100% SAF. And that was, you know, product that was made from the equifining process, along with a few other small components added into it, which also came from renewable sources to really create that full character of fossil jet. But it's certainly possible, you know, today with the total volumes of SAF that are being produced, It's really not a necessity to produce a 100% pure SAF, but in the future, as volumes grow, certainly users are going to look for the concentration of the sustainable portion of the fuel to grow as capacity grows. Excellent. And it doesn't sound like there's a big stretch on technology from the fuel standpoint or the aircraft as far as being able to use the 100%, maybe a little, but not. Yeah. That's right. And that's really the focus. That's really the focus of where the industry is going. The thing that makes this particularly attractive is it doesn't require new airliners. It doesn't require massive modification. It really is a drop-in or in the future will become at a higher concentration, still a drop-in application for the fuel. So when you think about it in terms of overall sustainability, we don't have to create brand new aircraft just be able to use sustainable fuel. We can use aircraft that have already been created. You know, the carbon footprint impact of their construction is already in the past. And there's a lot of advantages for that when we think about carbon intensity of human activity. Great. 
right? And so if we can, I think this is, as you can see, I think this is really fascinating to think about the SAF. I had understood that what a big challenge that was. I didn't realize that there was a sustainable fuel that was so close to being at least technologically feasible. So I think that's very exciting. But I wonder, you know, you've been doing this with Honeywell for three and a half decades. And I wonder, you've been providing products to the oil and gas industry for a long time. What are some of the other products and technologies that you think are particularly interesting these days? Well, that's a great question. And I definitely appreciate that. There's a whole range of them. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is we as Honeywell UOP, you know, I've been here for a little over 35 years. We as a company are a 108-year-old company. And you know, through that time have really supported the growth of the hydrocarbon industry, both in terms of refining petrochemicals and natural gas. And, you know, what we find today is there's a lot of opportunity to use technology that's been developed and in service for years to really support the shift to more sustainable energy practices. And so ecofining is actually one of them where we repurposed existing technology that had been used in hydro treating and hydro cracking for hydrocarbon refineries and adapted it in order to take plant and vegetable oils and produce similar types of products. But there's a range of other technologies like that today. So we offer today a range of technologies that can be used for carbon capture from industrial carbon producing sources whether that's post-combustion CO2 from the flue gas of a electricity generating turbine, flue gas out of a cement kiln, flue gas out of a blast furnace. If there's a flue gas that contains significant amounts of CO2, we have technology from our gas business that can be adapted to remove that CO2 and make it available for sequestration. We also recently announced a partnership with University of Texas for something that we're calling our advanced solvent system that's the best technology out there today for post-combustion carbon capture because it uses a highly efficient solvent that's also resistant to degradation in oxidizing environments like you would have in post-combustion. So, But this is really repurposing technology that was used to remove CO2 and H2S from natural gas and refining applications for decades. There are also technologies that are repurposing CO2 capture technologies that can be applied to hydrogen production. So hydrogen is one of the things that's potentially an alternate energy source in the future for hard to decarbonize industries, because when you burn hydrogen, all you produce is water. And so in the production of hydrogen, which today is mainly produced from natural gas, you can capture and recover the CO2 that's produced when you turn natural gas into hydrogen using, again, existing technologies that have over the years been refined to make them very efficient for refining natural gas applications and recover the bulk of the CO2 that would be produced in hydrogen production, both on a retrofit basis for existing steam methane reformers or as a new deployment of hydrogen production technology. We also have been working on plastics recycle technology. So we have a technology called Upcycle that we recently introduced to the market that can take mixed plastics from municipal streams or from post-industrial streams and reform that into 
an oil, a hydrocarbon oil that can go back into the supply chain for production of ethylene and propylene and ultimately be reformed into polyethylene and polypropylene. We're working on battery storage systems today that can support further electrification and support stability of the grid as we add more renewables onto the grid. For us, again, because we're a process technology company, we're working on flow batteries, which are you know, not something that we'd use for transportation, but that's something you would use for stationary power storage, especially for large grid type applications or backup power for operating facilities. It's an extension of our process technology, but also our materials technology. So we've been a process technology company, but we're also a materials company because we produce catalysts and adsorbents and membranes for process industries. So within UOP, there's a broad range of technologies like that that we've been working on. And then more broadly within Honeywell, our sister company, Process Solutions, which is a controls business, is also developing energy storage management solutions. So software and control solutions for battery energy storage. They're developing systems to real-time monitor and track emissions from hydrocarbon plants and processes with an array of remote sensors that can detect emissions and detect where they're coming from. So measure them real time and identify where corrective action is required. And then this all connects in with the broader mission within Honeywell of, you know, we have a large buildings management division, which is focused on optimizing the efficiency of building controls, whether it's the environmental controls within the building, And so all of these come together to create a broad portfolio where we can provide technology that can decarbonize the production of the raw material inputs that go into things that we use in society every day to providing the control systems in order to manage those assets once they're built and make sure that once we've created the building or the processing plant, that throughout its life cycle, we can manage and reduce the amount of CO2 emissions that come out of those. Wow. So sounds like you guys at Honeywell are well positioned to help lots of folks, an industry like oil and gas, but, you know, residential consumers with their plastic recycling. I mean, that's been a challenge for kind of a couple of decades now, right? Recycling got very big and then we started gaining a better understanding about really how much of what we actually put in the recycling bin is able to be recycled. So this notion that we humans wouldn't have to be quite so particular, (laughs) and yet it could still be beneficial is big. I think that's right. And, you know, we see, you know, with recycling rates today, you know, some countries, they're very good. Other countries, they leave a lot to be desired. And as you say, I think we all started down a path a few years ago where recycling looked easy. I think the challenge today is that you know, there are high value materials that can be recycled mechanically. And in many places, those are being recovered, they're being recycled mechanically, but then that leaves behind a significant amount of plastic waste that can't be sorted into pure forms and therefore can't necessarily be mechanically recycled at high value. And so technologies like the upcycle process allow those materials to be recycled at a manageable scale. And when we looked at the technology and we looked at what we needed to do to develop it, 
we realized that we needed a simple technology that was quite capable. So you, we want to be able to put a broad range of plastics in it. Certainly there's some sorting that needs to be done, but to be able to get as consistent as possible a product out the back end with a relatively inconsistent product in the front end and make sure that the key contaminants, that the chemical processors that are going to use it, make sure those key contaminants are minimized to the extent possible so there aren't additional processing steps once that polymer oil has been formed. And then to be able to deploy it at a scale that made sense so that it could marry up with the size of a typical large municipal recycling facility. Because I think the other challenge is if you make a recycling plant so big, it's hard to get all the inputs to it. If you make it too small, the cost of building it and operating it are a little bit mismatched for what you're trying to do. So we've been working to try to find that sweet spot where the plant itself is relatively small, quite robust, operable, and then can be sited at a customer's um, recycling facility. And then it's much more practical to transport the oil to a consumer rather than to try to transport all that waste plastic. So, you know, this is still emerging. You know, we've announced the first couple of projects that we're working on, one in the U.S. and one in Europe. Those projects are, you know, moving along towards, we believe, becoming real commercial projects. But it's an exciting area, and I think there's a lot of opportunity here. We think that there can be a significant impact. And then ultimately, I think there's opportunities for additional types of advanced chemical recycling to come along to handle more specific products and to start to close the value chain more effectively for different types of plastic waste as we go forward. Excellent. And so back to a question, or I kind of alluded to early on. It says you have over 60 patents. And so I am curious, are all of those kind of Honeywell related or is this something you do in your spare time as well, Brian? Well, I'd love to be able to say that I was, you know, sort of the mad scientist toiling away in my basement, creating new things, but I'm probably not that creative. But these are all, yeah, with my career at Honeywell UOP, these are all part of my career. And I spent a good portion of my career in research and development primarily around process development. And over that time, had the good fortune and the opportunity to work on lots of technology development activities, both supporting you know, existing process technologies that we've offered, but also supporting new technologies that we've just really brought to the market within the past 10 or 20 years. And that's one of the, I think that's one of the real exciting things about a company like ours is we at Honeywell UOP, we sell technology. Now, we also sell catalysts and adsorbents and equipment that are required to operate that technology. But at the end of the day, we create and evolve new process technology. And so that's work that we're constantly doing. And throughout the history of the oil refining and petrochemical business, we've been at the forefront of launching a lot of new technologies, some of which are still unique in the industry today to enable more and more efficient production of fuels, more and more efficient production of petrochemicals, and today more and more efficient production of sustainable products and capture of CO2 or reduction of CO2 in processing industries. And, you know, in addition to the things that we talked about already today, we're continuing to work in our core areas to make those, you know, refining and petrochemical processes much more efficient to help the world move from fuels refining to petrochemical production without excessive capital investment along the way. So it's exciting world today because aside from supporting the growth of new and more sustainable products and fuels, 
there's a lot of activity to support the adaptation of the existing infrastructure and assets out there today get to a more sustainable future. And all of our existing customers today are very focused on that, how they can make their operations more sustainable, how they reduce their scope one, scope two emissions. Many of them looking at how they reduce their scope three emissions by moving from fuels production into petrochemicals and plastics. And so the world's really moving at a pretty quick and accelerating pace, you know, down these vectors. And it's really exciting to be able to participate in that and support people in their journey. So I think you, number one, you know, I would say thank you, because one of the biggest, you know, concerns that I have, just me as a, I'm an engineer and a petroleum engineer and have spent a little time in this space, is we are in an energy transition. There's no doubt about that. I do get concerned sometimes about how smooth or bumpy that might be. And so what I love this notion that it's not just all about building something new, which has to shake up all of the infrastructure that we currently know and use. And instead we can do that, but all of the things that you're doing to try to adapt what we currently have and do so that it gives us some time to change the infrastructure, which is needed to support much of what will be required for this energy transition. So it seems like to me, you're kind of helping smooth out some of the big bumps as we move to something very different, a world very different than what we're used to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the way I like to think about it. And, you know, as we move towards a future of greater sustainable energy, I think the key thing is that there is a transition and there is a transition time. So the more effectively and the more thoughtfully we can transition, you know, high carbon impact activities and industries as quickly as possible and for the lowest cost possible to begin to reduce their carbon impact, I think it's very important. It's not about saying, okay, this is all bad, this is all good, all the bad has to stop and all the good has to start because we all know that from a purely practical perspective in terms of the time, the inputs that are required, the resources are required to make that transition, it takes a long, long time. And so I think the best thing that we can do is find those areas where we can have the most impact, apply or develop new technologies that have the greatest impact. And while we're building for the future, we're transitioning the past. And I think that's going to be the path that leads us to the most effective transformation. I think that sounds wise. Brian, I really appreciate your time today. I think it's fascinating to hear what's going on with the SAF. Also, you know, the recycling, you know, who knew that I didn't know that I was going to be hearing about that today. So both of those things, I think, like I guess started at the beginning, they impact our everyday lives. And so thank you so much for being here and talking to us about the big new technologies and discoveries and, you know, kind of some of the adaptations along the way that will be needed as well. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here today. And, you know, I firmly believe that the more visibility these types of solutions and these types of approaches have, the more we're going to see an acceleration in their adoption and acceptance. I think oftentimes just understanding what's possible kind of holds us back. I think the more that we all understand you know, different elements that could participate in our transition to the energy future, I think the more quickly we as a society are all going to move in a direction that benefits us all. I agree. I agree. So thank you again, Brian. 
And so this is going to wrap up this episode. And once again, I'd like to ask you to go take a look at hpe.com. Take a look at their new GreenLake platform. They want to help you simplify your IT management. And with that, I will say goodbye until next time. Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.